Rising. I'm Amber Duke, joined by Jessica Burbank. We are back to bring you Friday's biggest news, and Jessica is joining us from outer space. I am. This is my home studio for weekly-ish news. Unfortunately, I haven't been beamed up just yet. That's too bad. We also start today with some sad news. Jessica, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, we have some huge breaking news out of Russia. Opposition party leader and chief Putin critic Alexei Navalny died in prison on Friday at the age of 47. Kremlin officials reported this. Now, the Russian Federal Prison Service said he felt unwell after a walk and lost consciousness. An ambulance was called and crew tried to rehabilitate him, but were unsuccessful. He was serving a 19-year prison sentence in a high-security facility in remote northern Russia near the Arctic Circle. He has been jailed since returning to Russia in 2021 after recovering from one of several poisoning attempts. Navalny's lawyer shared on Twitter this morning that his representatives are working to confirm Russia's report of his death. NATO Secretary General Jan Stoltenberg, meanwhile, reacted to the news. Let's watch. Alexei Navalny is dead. All the facts has to be established, and uh, Russia has serious uh, questions uh, to answer. Alexei Navalny has been a strong voice for freedom, for democracy for many years, and uh, NATO and NATO allies has, uh, have called for his immediate uh, release uh, for a long time. And, and today my thoughts uh, go to his, um, his family and his uh, loved ones, and uh, uh, we remain uh, committed uh, to support everyone that uh, believes in democracy and uh, freedom, as uh, Alexei Navalny has done for so many years. Joining us now to weigh in is host of Daniel Davis Deep Dive, retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. Good morning, Colonel, and thanks for joining us. Do we have any indication yet of how exactly Navalny died? Do we know if he was killed or if this was truly an accidental death as the Russian prison service suggested? You know, I, I'm not sure we're ever gonna find out for sure. There's so many Putin critics uh, you know, that die under very odd and strange circumstances over time. Uh, you know, the uh, Prigozhin from the, the Wagner Group last year, uh, a number of other well-known critics within the country, you know, leapt to their deaths off buildings, which seemed to be a, a popular way to suddenly die. So there's no way to know for sure. It's entirely possible that it could have happened exactly like the, the Russian press says. I mean, people that happens to people, you know, all the time. Uh, but the, the, almost the bottom line is it doesn't really matter because the West will unequivocally believe that uh, Navalny was uh, assassinated and murdered. Uh, and it, even if they have an autopsy, I don't think anybody's going to believe it because the bottom line is he was in this prison by uh, Russia because they, he didn't like uh, his opposition views and, uh, and he died in prison. That's the, you can't get around that. His family members had visited him on the 12th and they're raising skepticism because they said he was perfectly healthy. Now we know that having a sudden medical condition is something that happens, but usually when someone's had a poisoning attempt before, that's likely what's happening again. Um, do you think that if, if nothing comes of this in investigation, Will there be any sort of backlash? Because it is true that Navalny did credit Putin for his first poisoning attempt. Yeah, I, I don't know that there's going to be backlash. There's certainly going to be a response among those who 
uh, followed him, especially within Russia and, and definitely throughout the West, because the West will, you can count on this, will seize on this to talk about, you know, how horrible Russia is and, you know, they're undemocratic and all this. So they will extract the maximum amount of view, uh, uh, opportunity from it. And, and probably those groups within Russia will also uh, do the same thing. But I, I think it's probably going to be short-lived because there's so many other things going on in the world right now. And obviously the developments are starting to uh, escalate in, in the Russia-Ukraine war. And that uh, could overshadow some things, especially if Avdivka falls in the next uh, week or so, that which is possible. So I don't think it's going to have any shaking events. I think it's going to be a, you know, it's going to get the news cycle spun up. And then I, I'm afraid it's probably going to die off after that. That's what I expect to happen. Yeah, President Joe Biden has previously said to expect consequences if Navalny does die in the Russian prison, but unclear um, how exactly he's going to react officially. I don't think we've actually even heard from the Biden administration just yet as of uh, as of taping this interview. But I was wondering, uh, Colonel Davis, if you could give us perhaps a little bit of just background on who Navalny was and how significant of a threat he really was to Putin, because of course, the indications are that Putin might have been trying to get rid of him um, in recent years because of the fact that he has been trying to expose alleged corruption. Yeah, the, the Navalny was was a, a opposition figure. Uh, you know, a lot of the West want to make it sound bigger than it was. He was a, a fairly fringe uh, person in Russian politics. He had some success and some supporters. It wasn't widespread. He was never able to to generate this big movement like uh, many wanted to because, you know, most of the Russians didn't follow after that. And they still have extremely positive views on, on Vladimir Putin. So they're not uh, and, and never have really moved in large numbers towards him. Uh, I, I actually saw just before coming on here that Vice President Kamala Harris from the Munich Security Conference did say something. And, uh, you know, what you would expect, you know, this is a freedom fighter and, uh, you know, it's a terrible thing to do. We'll have more to say, et cetera. But I'll tell you, this does kind of expose the United States in, in particular in the West in general uh, to an, an expanding problem that most of the rest of the non-Western world sees. And that's this double standard, because while we excoriate Putin for doing what he did to Navalny, and I agree that that shouldn't have been done to him. Navalny, by all accounts, is a, is a great guy, a truth teller, uh, and was trying to expose the, the regime. But then you have the U.S. doing almost the identical thing to Julian Assange, mm. who is also in a high security prison in, in, in the U.K., awaiting extradition to the U.S., uh, and nobody wants to let him have a voice to do anything either. And so the, oh, the rest of the world sees that. Now, we'll tell ourselves, oh, well, that's different because in fill in the blank. But to most of the world, you see a political figure that the Russians in the United States don't like, and they're silencing him in jail. So to them, it's the same thing, which means our comments here on Russia are going to fall on deaf ears in a lot of places. I'm curious, Colonel, what do you make of the recent interview Tucker Carlson had with Vladimir Putin and the response to that? You had the White House saying, we can't take anything Putin says at face value, discrediting the interview before they had seen it and a lot of Americans had seen it. Do you think that's the, the proper positioning for the Biden administration now on Russia? Oh, I don't at all. And in fact, if you look at what Putin has said before the war started, right on the eve of it, in the the, uh, the Istanbul uh, negotiations that he talked about in, in March, April of uh, 2022, and what he said in that interview, it's nearly the same thing all the way through. So he is, has signaled consistently what his red lines are and what his negotiation positions are. And the fact that we won't even engage in that and we're still pressing for victory, 
even despite two years of war and no progress on the battlefield since November of 2022. And now, in fact, it's starting to move back to the West again. All the conditions show that it would be in our interest to actually take Putin up on that and try to find a negotiated settlement. Look, a negotiation doesn't mean you just give them what they want and walk away. That's surrender. But it says, all right, if that's your opening position, here's our counterproposal, which pushes back on some of that. I mean, that's what you do in negotiation. But if you're not even talking, then all you're doing is keeping the cards in Putin's hand because he is succeeding on the battlefield in slow numbers. Well, and I would think as well, uh, Lieutenant Colonel, that at the very least, this interview, even if Putin was playing games in it or perhaps telling lies, that this would be a really valuable piece of intel for American officials to comb through and, and help understand either his motivations or, or perhaps some of the ways in which he is twisting perception of the war in order to advance his goals. Well, look, I, I assume that much of what Putin says is deceptive or distorted, and certainly from his position. Uh, I mean, you can say the same thing from the West. I mean, everybody's position is that way. They always characterize things from their perspective and make them look like the innocent ones and the other people look like the bad guys. But the, the reality is this is I don't think that this is a good, evil thing. This is a their side and our side, and, and that's simple. And, and the harsh truth of reality, of geopolitics, and of battlefield realities, you've got to take what's real and say, all right, how can we use wise diplomacy and strong, you know, in the military realm where that's useful to get something that's positive outcome, as opposed to ignoring the reality and saying, I, I don't care what it is, I just want this to happen, so I'm going to keep pushing it, if it's in contradiction to the realities on the ground in geopolitics. And Unfortunately, I think we're more in that category than we are in the former, and we better change course pretty quick so we get something out of this. All right. Thank you, Lieutenant Colonel. Excuse me, Lieutenant Colonel, for joining us. Really appreciate it. We'll be back with more Rising next. It just keeps getting worse for Fonnie Willis, the Georgia DA. She made a combative appearance in court yesterday, along with her lover, Nathan Wade. Willis repeatedly called allegations that she and Wade had slept together the first time they met lies and accused attorney Ashley Merchant of intruding on her personal life. Here's some of that. Um, did you listen to any of the arguments? I did hear the, the arguments this morning. It's ridiculous to me that the you lied on Monday, and yet here we still are. And I did listen to that argument. Um, right, I listened to the argument this morning where Adam Abadi, I thought, did an excellent job pointing out how dishonest you were with the court on Monday. And um, I'm actually surprised that the hearing continued. But since it did, here I am. When the state was well, able it's to highly offensive when someone lies on you, and it's highly offensive when they try Touch. to implicate that you slept with somebody the first day you met with them, and I take exception to it. All right, well, also of note, Willis seemingly admitted to campaign finance violations by acknowledging that she pocketed money from her first campaign. Watch. My whole life, when I took out a large amount of money on my first campaign, I kept some of the cash of that. Like, to tell you, I just have cash in my house. I don't have as much today. It only got better from there. Later in her testimony, Willis misheard a male attorney and accused him of calling her a whore. Take a listen. I didn't ask you that. I was going to ask you that. 4000 is part of your, my words, cash hoard that you had collected over time. Cash what? Hoard, H-O-R-D-E. Well, I thought you said something different, sir. No, I'm afraid I wouldn't say that. Uh -huh. Any circumstances to you or in All right, back on track. The hoard, cash hoard. 
Willis and Wade testified that their relationship began in 2022, though a close personal friend of Willis testified that they began seeing each other romantically in 2019. Per The Hill, Robin Yerti, who met Willis in college, testified Thursday that the district attorney began a romantic relationship with Wade in 2019, shortly after a municipal court conference and three years prior to when the prosecutors said they began dating. Quote, you have no doubt that their romantic relationship was in effect from 2019 until the last time you spoke with her. Merchant Act, sorry, Merchant asked Yerti, no doubt, Yerdy replied. So I, I don't know what to make of what's going on here. If it's true that their relationship began in 2022, obviously that's after the DA's office began handling this case. If it began in 2019, that's even before 2020, even before the facts of the case unfolded. So it seems to me that they could have corroborated their stories, though it doesn't seem that they're that close anymore. Yeah, exactly. So uh, one of the biggest problems is that Nathan Wade uh, seemingly lied about the date that they started seeing each other in those divorce proceedings with his wife and, and several times throughout the past few months has amended the statements that he made under oath, um, which is a huge problem because, of course, they want to give the perception that they didn't start dating until 2022 because it helps tamp down the appearance that she hired him solely because he was her romantic partner, despite the fact that he did not have really the necessary qualifications or experience in order to handle this massive RICO case against the former president. Now, the other problem here as well, in addition to the perception of there being a corrupt aspect to this, is that if they lied under oath repeatedly, they, as lawyers, as attorneys, ethically, cannot sit there and make false statements while they are prosecuting a case where several of the defendants are also accused of making false statements. Now, I don't know why she decided to testify. I don't know why her lawyer didn't do a better job of preparing her for this, or why she herself, who is the, one of the top lawyers in the entire state of Georgia, was not better prepared for this. But any lawyer knows going into a situation like this that you are supposed to answer the question in as few words as possible and nothing else. And I don't know if she thought that she was smarter than the other attorneys there or she could somehow wiggle her way out of this conundrum that she's found herself in. But she continued to ex over explain and take issue with minor details that were really not central to the point that the lawyers were making. And I think in general, if you're explaining, you're losing. And she ended up offering up so much more incriminating information than the lawyers were even asking about. This was an absolute disaster. Again, I don't know who thought it was a good idea for her to go through with this. Maybe she was just angry and felt like she needed her side to be heard. Um, but wow, she really did herself a huge disservice. Just talk about shooting yourself in the foot. Yeah, I wonder what's going to come out of that comment she made seemingly in passing. Just I have cash in my house from a campaign I ran. It's really rich seeing people who work in a DA's office on the other side of this chair. And Wade, I really want to focus on a few things he said uh, in his deposition that make a lot more sense after watching Fonnie Willis. He talked about how he wasn't recalling the exact dates. And he just said, you know, I'm just a man, which is hilarious because we had Joe Biden say, well, you know, I'm a well-meaning elderly man. That's true. That's why I didn't remember stuff during that deposition. We also know it was on October 8th. So there was a lot going on in the world at the time. But he could have 
just said, like Wade, I'm just a man. He could have left out the well-meaning and the elderly part, apparently. And then he also said something that's just jarring to me. He said, well, I don't know the exact dates because I'm not in like elementary school, or primary school. You don't pass a note that says, will you be my girlfriend? This is just insight as to the nature of this relationship. Very immature relationship emotionally. I almost feel bad for Fonnie Willis that she's a very powerful woman and she's dating guys like this. Of course you ask her to be your girlfriend. Of course you have a conversation about the nature of the relationship. That's an adult thing to do, actually, not a childlike thing to do. So it could have been a much more compelling case that they make if they're like, listen, we fell in love. We both love justice. Instead, we have a situationship <laughs> in the DA's office that is seemingly influencing one of the biggest cases ever. Fonnie Willis herself made the point that, you know, an affair is not as serious as potentially what they're dealing with, which would be overturning a presidential election. And it's like, great. So this should not absolutely get in the way of that. Yeah, Nathan Wade also said that he uh, he didn't initially cop to having a relationship outside of his marriage because he didn't believe it counted as being outside his marriage if he was separated from his wife, which is just like big brain stuff, I guess, galaxy brain level takes. Um, Fonnie Willis also talked about how they went to Napa Valley together, even though she doesn't like wine because she likes Grey Goose. She strolled into the courtroom with her dress on backwards with the zipper in the front, and her body language in general was very defensive, very standoffish. She didn't seem to have much respect for the process in general. Uh, but then going back to what she said about that campaign money, the campaign cash, you can't keep money after you finish your campaign. You either need to donate it, you need to tuck it away for a future campaign, you can give it to a political party, but you absolutely cannot just withdraw the cash and keep it in your house to reimburse your boyfriend for your business trips. And this, of course, introduces another element of, of great suspicion in terms of what their story is because Nathan Wade put all of these, um, these very lavish vacations and trips on his business credit card and then claims that uh, they didn't have to report any of these as gifts because you're supposed to report gifts from people who have business with the DA's office over $100. They said they didn't have to uh, report any of those because Fonnie Willis reimbursed him. And when asked how she reimbursed him and if there's any paper trail of it, she said that she paid him back all in cash. And that was what led to the question of, okay, well, where did all of the cash come from? And so she says it came from the campaign. So she just casually admits to one, not having any evidence that any of these trips were, uh, were actually reimbursed for. And the central allegation here, in addition to them lying under oath, is the idea that she hired him because she could get some personal benefit out of the prosecution. He, of course, is making $500,000 more than anyone else in that office who was tasked with investigating the former president. And then immediately after that, admits to a campaign finance violation. I mean, everything about this was just a train wreck in slow motion. I couldn't look away. Exactly, Amber. The response very easily could have been, I make a decent salary. I work very hard, very long hours. I'm a woman with money. Not hard, but it seems to me that she wasn't prepared at all which is interesting because she's a, a prosecutor, she's the DA. So she knows how these things usually go. And it seems to me that she felt too big to fail, that she knows this stuff, she does it on a daily basis. So for some reason, when she's in the position of 
questions are being asked of her rather than her asking the questions, that somehow she would be prepared when you're not in that position a lot as a prosecutor. Just because you've done the question asking doesn't mean you're ready to take the heat when you're in that seat. And she really wasn't. And it, it speaks a lot to our justice system as a whole that oftentimes a lot of the people in power can't really deliver when they're on the other side. They end up incriminating themselves seemingly on things that weren't even the topic of discussion. And then you also have Wade, who likewise is a prosecutor who used the reasoning, I'm just a man for not remembering dates. If he was cross-examining a witness on the stand and they used that excuse, I would assume he would find it an unacceptable response. Yeah, and I think Fonnie Willis um, copped to that, uh, that campaign finance violation, um, alleged campaign finance violation, because she didn't have an explanation for where the cash came from. It came out during the trial that there were basically no bank records or ATM records showing that she had withdrawn cash, and so she had to come up with some reason why she had it. Otherwise, then maybe she would have been uh, audited by the IRS or investigated for tax fraud. So she's got herself embroiled in all kind of nonsense. I think to your point, Jessica, this raises a lot of questions about how exactly she got this position in the first place. We'll be back with more Rising after this. New updates from the war in the Middle East as Israel launched a series of airstrikes targeting Hezbollah infrastructure in southern Lebanon yesterday, killing at least two fighters and at least seven civilians. The strikes were in response to an attack by Hezbollah forces against Israel, resulting in the death of one Israeli soldier and the wounding of seven others. The exchange of missiles comes as countries across the world begin to express unease towards Israel's actions in Gaza. The parliamentary secretary to Canada's foreign affairs minister said in a leaked audio from a phone call with a constituent that the suspension of the UNRWA was, quote, political and wrong, and admits that Israel is, quote, probably committing genocide. Meanwhile, the prime ministers of Australia, Canada and New Zealand released a joint statement on a potential military operation in Rafah, Gaza. From the statement, a military operation into Rafah would be catastrophic. About 1.5 million Palestinians are taking refuge in the area, including many of our citizens and their families. With the humanitarian situation in Gaza already dire, the impacts on Palestinian civilians from an expanded military operation would be devastating. We urge the Israeli government not to go down that path. There is simply nowhere else for civilians to go. The statement comes on the heels of a military operation at Nasser Hospital in Gaza that Israeli forces claimed was a staging ground for Hamas terror operations and holding hostages. Here are statements from IDF forces yesterday. We have credible intelligence from a number of sources, including from released hostages, indicating that Hamas held hostages at the Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunis, and that there may be bodies of our hostages in the Nasser Hospital facility as was proven with the Shifa Hospital, Rantisi Hospital, El Amal Hospital, and many other hospitals across Gaza. Hamas systematically uses hospitals as terror hubs. According to intelligence assessments and information we gathered on the ground, over 85% of major medical facilities in Gaza have been used by Hamas for terror operations. Now, there have been attacks in Khan Yunis, which was originally designated as an area that would be safe. The UNRWA operates schools there. Schools have been turned into places for people to shelter. There were 1,800 people 
sheltering in a school that was shot at repeatedly by Israeli forces on January 25th and 27th. And then on February 7th, they divided the women and the men in the school. 800 men complied. They were all put in a room, stripped from their clothes. 15 of them were taken away while they were completely naked, including one UN social worker. The statements from the United States that the UNRWA is somehow complicit in what Hamas is doing because Hamas allegedly has gotten some supplies is, is ridiculous, especially when you consider how they're operating in the places that were formerly designated safe by the IDF, and now they're beginning ground operations on a place that is smaller than some airports, where 1.5 million people are. It is smaller than Heathrow Airport in London. So it's really an insane situation that the United States is currently considering giving more aid to Israel amiss President Biden has also signed, uh, you know, this agreement that his own order that the United States will not give weapons to human rights violators. And that's been seen to happen in Gaza time and again. I think the UNRWA problem is more than just that they could potentially be providing indirect support to Hamas, but the fact that there were 10 confirmed employees who actively participated in the October 7th attacks. Now, that is a small percentage of the overall employees, but we also see, according to intelligence, that about half of them either have family members who are directly involved in terrorism, and uh, 1,200 UNRAW employees are either Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad operatives. And so I think it makes sense to pause aid to them until they can root out some of uh, these problems, considering the level of terrorist sympathizers that are working in this so-called aid organization. Um, we also see that Biden has been uh, pushing forward the idea of a two-state solution and specific recognizing a Palestinian state, which is a bit of a stronger statement than we've seen from him previously. He's obviously responding to pressure from the base of the Democratic Party and especially Arab American groups to be less pro-Israel and to provide more support for Palestine. Uh, I, I guess just my question for you is, if Biden were to offer a, a recognition of the Palestinian state, do you think the Palestinians would accept it? I think that's the bare minimum. It's really up to Israel. I mean, when Israel's running a ground campaign, pushing people out of their homes, pushing people out of the Palestinian state, it's, it's, there, is there one if Biden says there there is one? No, because if Netanyahu continues to move forward in the way he's been moving, he said that the Palestinian population needs to settle in neighboring countries, which means there's no Palestinian state. So Biden saying that there has to be a post-war Palestinian state while supporting Netanyahu, who said the opposite, and moreover, giving billions of dollars in military assistance for the opposite to be the end goal of Israel's operations in Palestine, it, it just doesn't mean much to me. But to go back to what uh, came out of Canada recently, this leaked audio, uh, Canada is a Western country, an ally of the United States. For there to be an elected uh, official or appointed official, rather, discussing the politicization of saying the UNRWA has members who are in Hamas, saying that that was a political statement and was wrong. I'm really curious what evidence Canada has of this, what they know the intelligence was that the United States is relying on with this accusation. So I think we'll see what comes out of that in the coming weeks and months, because if we already have Western nations questioning this, I think we're going to see some movement on this because to categorize a UN agency that's been supplying aid for longer than just since October 7th 
you know, that's that's really detrimental, especially when you have Joe Biden being, I don't know, pressured or forced to make statements or making them of his own volition, that it's really important the Palestinians get aid. You can't stop giving aid to the biggest agency with the most ground operations and ability to get necessary aid to civilians. You need the UNRWA if you're going to ensure that Palestinians don't die of famine thanks to the Israeli blockade. So the way we see this moving forward in the coming days and months, uh, we're going to need to see Biden be more stern with Netanyahu than just supposedly giving him stern words about killing civilians behind closed doors. Yeah, well, here's the thing. From a general uh, principle standpoint, the whole point of the U.S. giving foreign aid should be that they're able to, in some ways, affect the policy of these other countries, right? Your foreign aid should be conditioned on the idea that those countries either operate in a certain way or meet certain conditions in order to receive it. So if Biden were smart, if he did want to actually recognize a Palestinian state, this he would serve a warning to Netanyahu, perhaps, that foreign aid is no longer going to come to you, um, weaponry is no longer going to come to you unless you take a negotiation process seriously. So, I, I, I mean, he has a good leverage point there if he continues to provide aid in the short term um, while threatening to take it away in the long term. I mean, if there's any argument, I think, for continuing to give money to Israel, which I'm very skeptical of, then it would be that you still have that leverage point um, with Netanyahu when it comes to ending the war and heading into negotiations. Yeah, and we have reports coming out of the White House that, you know, President Joe Biden's upset to some degree that Netanyahu's not listening to him behind closed doors. When asked about the Rafa operation, you had John Kirby saying that, well, of course, Netanyahu and the president have talked about it. You know, the president's warned him that this has to be an operation that takes into consideration civilian lives, which I'm sure Israel always does. They've just included them in a part of the calculation that ends up not influencing whether or not they bomb a particular school or refugee camp that they're saying is a Hamas command center. You had Mark Lamont Hill interviewing a former Mossad director that really revealed the thinking of the Israeli forces when asked if Israel would operate in the same way if it were Israeli women and children that were the civilians being killed. He wouldn't answer the question. So they've made this calculation morally that Palestinian lives are somehow worth less. And so when asked, you know, John Kirby, are you aware of what the operation will be? How will they account for civilian lives? They just said that's up to Israel. So we're just going to keep financing them, not require them to promise us in any way or come up with an actual plan to not kill civilians while allegedly eradicating Hamas. That's a ridiculous relationship between an ally and someone who's giving them billions of dollars of aid. Well said. We'll be back with more Rising after this. Transgenderism and gender identity have entered the news again as LGBT ideology continues to dominate American public life. Close to us here in the nation's capital, two Virginia public school students filed a complaint yesterday alleging the state's model policies for transgender students violate local and federal law, and they accused officials of ignoring evidence-based best practices and discrimination. Meanwhile, schools in blue states are taking actions to enforce conformity on LGBT issues and crushing dissent. From The Federalist, Massachusetts public school administrators forced a middle schooler to remove a shirt acknowledging there are only two human sexes. The middle schooler, Leah Morrison's shirt, caused no disruptions at the school, according to the complaint. The incident prompted Morrison to wear a different shirt to school that read, 
There are censor genders, which administrators also forced him to remove, the lawsuit says. The pushback against dissent from LGBT ideology comes as new research into procedures and treatments specifically prescribed to children come under increased scrutiny, though gender activists wish it was not so. In a recent piece from Unheard, British clinical neuropsychologist Sally Baxendale writes that political activists attempted to stymie her research report into the effects of puberty blockers on children, noting that one reviewer for her scientific article, quote, argued that lots of things needed to be sorted out before a clear case for the riskiness of puberty blockers could be made, even circumstantially. Indeed, they appear to be advocating for a default position of assuming medical treatments are safe until proven otherwise. Here to discuss how transgenderism and LGBT ideology is impacting the political landscape and children is Sarah Partial Perry, Senior Legal Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Sarah, welcome to Rising, and I know we uh, hit you with a lot of stories there, but I want to distill this a little bit down into a recent move from the Biden administration to finalize their new Title IX rule, which would include gender identity and sexual orientation as a protected category under Title IX. And uh, in effect, what this would mean is that girls' spaces would be abolished in public schools um, because you would have to allow a man or a boy who identifies as a girl to have access to locker rooms, sport teams, bathrooms, et cetera. So if you could start by just walking us through the implications of this Title IX change and where or when, rather, we should expect to see this coming down the pipeline. Yeah, it's hard to underestimate uh, exactly how sort of catastrophic these changes are going to be. Remember, Title IX has been around for 50 years. It's never been interpreted to mean anything other than male and female, as this term sex is used within that law. And it was really the pinnacle achievement of the women's liberation movement. It was sort of the feminist dream that women would have all educational opportunities that were tantamount and equal to those of men, graduate schools, sports, scholarship programs. This change is going to open up every separated arena that has essentially been created to protect the interests of women and to prevent discrimination and essentially open it up to any male male who identifies as a woman, whether or not that is going to result in discrimination violation of privacy or lost championship titles, scholarship opportunities or more. This is going to be a rule that will have devastating effects for American education and will affect every school in the country that receives so much as a dollar of federal funding, whether directly or indirectly. It is currently under review at the White House. They have 60 days to be able to make it through and can ask for an extension up to 120 days. After that point, it goes back to the Department of Education to make any necessary changes. And if it makes it that far, it will be published in the Federal Register once it has survived the timeline for a Congressional Review Act challenge. That means that both Senate and House chambers on Capitol Hill have two thirds of a vote requirement to be able to downvote it and essentially defeat it before it's ever published. But for the most part, we anticipate that this rule will affect every school receiving federal funding in the country by August or September of this year. 
Now I want to turn to the middle schooler wearing the two genders t-shirt. There was, of course, the landmark Supreme Court case in 1969, Tinker v. Des Moines, when you had students wearing their armbands to show their dissent from the U.S. involvement in the Vietnam War. And you had a 7-2 ruling from the Supreme Court where they said it turns out, you know, students don't shed their constitutional right to freedom of expression at the schoolhouse gate. But then we saw in 2021, two students, eight years old and five years old, wearing Black Lives Matter shirts, and they were pulled from, from classrooms and not allowed to reenter their classrooms for the entirety of the day. Why do you think maybe the Supreme Court should hear this case or, or rather than the case about the Black Lives Matter shirts? It sounds like at this point, we're not going to see anything come of that, given that that was in 2021. Why do you think the Supreme Court would or should hear the case on the gender shirt instead? You know, this is about as close to a fact pattern in Tinker versus Des Moines as you could possibly see. And we do know a couple of things about the rights of students and their free speech uh, property and sort of intellectual property rights once they go into the public school system. They do not shed them at the schoolhouse gate. And the Supreme Court made very clear back in the 1970s with that decision that ultimately children can represent whatever perspectives that they would like so long as not disruptive and that is the key when it comes to public information public expression public speech and remember these are federally funded schools they are for all intents and purposes limited public forums they are government entities so the children have to respect certain time place and manner restrictions and especially within education the goal is to make sure that there is nothing disruptive about the speech that's offered here liam was not disrupting anything with a t-shirt that said very simply there are two genders and in fact there have been t-shirts that have represented other political and ideological perspectives already at that school yet Liam was singled out for different treatment. Well, that's viewpoint discrimination and that's patently unconstitutional. This is currently right now in federal trial court in Massachusetts. Any honest judge worth their salt who passed the bar exam will be able to see that this is an unconstitutional restriction on his free speech rights. And the goal is that this may not have to make it to the Supreme Court because the federal trial court will ultimately do the right thing. Sorry, I just want to make sure I understand you clearly. Is it that the eight and five-year-old Herbert boys in the BLM t-shirts, those were disruptive, but Liam's gender shirt was not disruptive in your view? Those are the claims of the attorneys, yes, on both sides. And in fact, depending on whether or not there was an actual disruption whatsoever, the boys with the two Black Lives Matter t-shirts have a right to express their perspectives on that as well, so long as not disruptive. That is the criteria that any federal court will determine whether or not any speech, whether nonverbal speech, expressive speech, or verbal speech is considered to be disruptive in a classroom. If there are circumstances flowing from that that could make an American classroom somehow lose discipline, good order, or prove to be disruptive, then the school administration has a foundational basis to be able to ask those students to remove their shirts. But in Liam's case, distinctly, we know there was not any disruption whatsoever. 
So we've seen some polling uh, recently come out on the issue related to puberty blockers and hormone therapy for youth who are suffering from gender dysphoria. And it finds that most people are opposed to offering this type of medical intervention and support instead the wait and see method of seeing how these uh, children progress when they reach adulthood. Now, uh, despite this public opinion being so strongly against this, we've seen that a lot of uh, transgender activists as well as mainstream media outlets have been uh, really pushing back against the idea of banning these treatments through legislation. However, over the past year, we've also seen in the UK that their medical establishment has moved away from puberty blockers and hormone therapy. And in the past year in the United States, media outlets have started publishing more skeptical uh, opinions on this issue. The New York Times just uh, published a huge investigation from Pamela Paul about the existence of detransitioners and the percentage, the high percentage of children who desist from uh, gender dysphoria. Do you feel like perhaps the tide is turning a little bit in terms of the public opinion um, starting to turn the tide on the media coverage and perhaps some of the um, activist support of the way that we treat transgender kids in our country? I hope so. That is my great hope. And all the polling that we've seen really across the spectrum, whether it's from Harvard Harris, Washington Post, or Rasmussen Reports, all indicates that about 70% of Americans approve of a wait and see methodology. Most of the developed Western nations, Finland, Denmark, Sweden, to a certain extent, France and England have all now backtracked on their previous sort of fast tracking, affirm only, affirm often type approach because they realize there is a paucity of evidence that indicates these really are completely safe treatments whatsoever. And in the absence of that evidence. We really need to take a wait and see approach. We know that anywhere between 80 and 94% of these teens who have expressions of gender incongruity or gender dysphoria go on to ultimately make, make peace with their birth sex. Listen, puberty is a very tormented, hormonally charged time period. I am the mother of three teenage kids. They don't always make the best decisions. These particular state bans are exactly what the states should be doing. Those state legislators are making sure that the interests of vulnerable kids who may not even be protected by their own parents because the parents too have been fed a line about the fact that this is life saving care. They are doing exactly the right thing and making sure that legislation protecting the interests of these vulnerable kids is passed, signed into law, and ultimately can protect them until they are old enough to make these decisions on their own. Unfortunately, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us, Sarah Partial Perry. We'll have to have you back to break, that, break this down more. Woo. Thanks so much for having me. Shocking new footage from last year's Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, has been released. President Biden is set to make his first visit to the town today, one year after disaster struck. One Ohio man says local and federal governments have been ignoring the environmental and health issues of the controlled chemical burn. 
Dr. Rick Chai is a chiropractor from East Palestine who's been tracking the chemical runoff in the town's waters and is running for Congress. He joins us now to tell us more about his campaign and what he expects from President Biden's visit today. Dr. Chai, thanks for joining us. Let's start with the, with the president's visit because this is now a year in the making. Um, he has refused to visit until now. At this point, what can he even offer the residents of East Palestine? Okay, and then before I answer that, I want to say my campaign page is rickchai.com, that's T-S-A-I. And then uh, on Facebook, Dr. Rick Chai for Congress. Um, I think a lot of residents are getting a little tired of uh, people using us kind of like uh, cheap jewelry to dangle or kind of bling to wear around their neck. Uh, when the media leaves and they leave uh, after getting their photo ops, nothing happens here. Uh, we've got not one penny or one uh, bottle of water from the federal government. Uh, the EPA lies and says they can find no evidence of chemicals. I was on a uh, talk show with uh, NPR, with uh, the also the, uh, uh, the head of the uh, Ohio EPA. She said they can find no evidence of chemicals here. I took the media down to the creeks last night, uh, two miles down from the crash site in the park where children play. I dig dirt in the bank and chemicals just ooze out of the bank. Uh, I'm walking through the creek. Chemicals are oozing around my feet. Um, it's I, they're either they're either hiring the most inept buffoons at the EPA, or there's something nefarious or criminal going on here. And I know what I believe. So you work in wellness currently, while also being on the campaign trail. How, what have you seen as the impact on most everyday people's wellness following the controlled chemical burn? I'll talk about two things real quickly. Myself, I was seriously ill three times from the creeks. That's why I wear uh, an Avon respirator, military mask, and military gear. Um, welts on my body, rashes where the water would splash on me, uh, burning eyes, ears, uh, not ears, but nose and throat, nasal cavity, uh, chest. Uh, yes, diarrhea uh, nonstop for about four weeks when you breathe those chemicals in. Uh, rashes are still common uh, with patients, uh, headaches, um, sore throats, just illness, that, that chronic illnesses that a lot of my healthy patients didn't have before. When it rains here or when there is a fog, it almost smells like an open can of paint. It smacks you right in the face. And I don't walk through town saying, hey, what's it smell like today? You know, my mind is on other things. And all of a sudden you just hit with this horrible chemical smell. Uh, it's still highly contaminated here in our waterways. And uh, who knows what's still in the soil. We've seen now uh, residents from East Palestine try to step up and help out each other in lieu of the federal government's assistance. At what point did you decide that you wanted to run for Congress to try to make a difference? So a uh, uh, just before Christmas, you start walking around like you're a kind of a zombie in a catatonic state because you kind of just give up. You prove uh, the EPA, the CDC, you prove these entities wrong, uh, but nothing ever happens. There's no ramifications. A donkey that you dangle the carrot and the stick in front of needs a bite of that carrot once in a while or it just gives up. And that's kind of how I and other residents felt. Bill Johnson, a Republican, gave up his seat uh, just out of nowhere to take the presidency at YSU. I came home one night right after work. Uh, my wife was cooking dinner. She didn't even say hello. She turned to me and said, you need to run for Bill Johnson's seat. Thought for a minute and I said, I will. And if you've seen that movie Shawshank Redemption where Andy Dufresne's He's carving his initials in the 
the wall and a piece of failed concrete comes out. You see his face and he realizes there's a way out. And when I win this, there's going to be a way out because I'm not going to shut up about East Palestine. But I will fight D6 for all of you, just as I fought the CDC, the EPA, Norfolk Southern here as well. And I have a lot to lose. So listen, I've done pretty well in life. I don't need money or friends. Uh, I didn't know what the ramifications were for speaking out, but there's an injustice here. And this is a microcosm of what's going on in the world and nation today. Uh, the deceit, the lies, the corruption, um, I'll fight for the entire D6 and I'll fight for the entire nation when I'm in Congress. I'm gonna knock people on their ear. I'm curious, have you seen any updates on Norfolk Southern potentially having a settlement with the residents of East Palestine and the surrounding communities? Have you seen any movement on that? No, I think they're just waiting for the lawsuits to play out. And who knows with class action suits, um, you know, people may get $1,500 10 years from now. And we've got people displaced from their homes, people down at the crash sites that don't want to be there because of the contamination. It's just criminal what happened here. When the EPA was so proud, they were the Ohio EPA is bragging about them being here two hours after the uh, derailment. Hey, we were here two hours after. Why in your initial report then did you write, we witnessed Norfolk Southern laying tracks over contaminated liquid and soil. And then they ran their train over trains over that for months, pounding those chemicals into our land. So I believe the EPA is just as uh, responsible here for this criminal act as Norfolk Southern. But no, Norfolk Southern probably has a great playbook. Um, they know that this is going to take years in court. Uh, those people at the crash site should have been bought out. And Congress, you should have given these people low or no interest loans at the very least so they could get out. And those, those loans should not have to be paid back until these poor people uh, sell their existing homes, even if they can, because people can't pay two mortgages. People want out. I would think there should be a congressional investigation as well into the federal response to this because in addition to what you just laid out, it also took 10 days for the Transportation Secretary, Pete Buttigieg, to even address this situation publicly, let alone go visit. He didn't even get there until after the former president, Donald Trump. Um, is this something that you would pursue if you were elected to Congress? When I get elected, not if, but when, there's going to be a lot more TDS. That's Trump and a chai derangement syndrome. <laughs> so uh, President Biden is coming, I believe, just because it's an election year and he has to. In fact, uh, Secret Service was here because he's going to be about uh, 30 yards from my office. Um, he, there was no reason for him to come. He was just forced to, basically. Uh, so uh, Trump was here right after. And people might say, uh, hey, that was a stunt. Of course, it wasn't a stunt to me because I believe he really cared. But whatever it was, he came and our sitting president did not. Yeah, the whole situation's a bit of a mess. I want to go back to the just the days that this was unfolding. After the derailment, there was this rumor that the reason they had to burn the chemicals that were on the train was because they would explode, because temperatures, if they got too hot, would explode and it would endanger the surrounding communities. There were subsequent investigations that that actually wasn't the case. And the reason that there was a, a controlled burn is because it was cheaper for Norfolk Southern. So I think a, a congressional investigation into the corporations makes sense as well. I'm curious, are there still conversations in the community uh, about what happened that day? Is it widely reported among residents of East Palestine that this was an unnecessary chemical burn as well? Hey, no. 
and that temperature was going down uh, well below uh, safe levels when they blew it up. There was never any polymerization. Uh, vinyl chloride, the polymers, when they start sti sticking together, that is what makes PVC. Uh, they were supposedly afraid that it was going to uh, bind together and muck up the valves. Uh, Oxyvinyl said that's just impossible. That won't happen. All the shrapnel, all the shrapnel obtained, there's not one bit of polymerization, no evidence of that. Um, so it was just uh, time and money, I believe. And um, so the residents know, unfortunately, it is horrible here. It is, this town is fractured. There's fighting so bad. If the entity that caused this stepped away and the government did the cleanup, that would be one thing. Then people would probably still be mad at Norfolk Southern. But Norfolk Southern's playbook is they came in, they're dangling gifts, uh, carnivals, fireworks, the promise of hotels and things coming in. A $25 million park in a town of 4,000 people. Who ever heard of that? So you've got the one faction that says, shut up, don't show the chemicals in the creek or shut up about the, the contamination because you're going to ruin it for us. Uh, Norfolk Southern uh, isn't going to want to do the, you know, they're helping us. Don't, don't mess it up. Then the other side is worried about their health. We don't care about the money. We care about our health, or at least do things simultaneously. Move these people out that want to move and go ahead and build your $25 million park if you want. Sounds like extortion to me. All right, Dr. Rick Chai, thank you so much for joining us. We'll continue to follow your campaign. Thank you so much, both of you. And D6, vote Rick Chai. I will fight for you. world is preparing a counteroffensive to the public release of the transcript of Biden's five-hour interview with special counsel Robert Herr, anticipating the document will lead to renewed speculation over Biden's mental health. Per NBC News, Biden's aides anticipate a lengthy partisan clash over the transcript and possibly the audio recording that would keep the president on the defensive over questions about his mental fitness as he campaigns for re-election. This comes as House Republicans have demanded that the Justice Department release the transcript of the interview by next Monday. The House Oversight Committee posted to its ex account that Americans deserve transparency about President Biden's mental state and his mishandling of classified documents, along with the four-page letter to Attorney Gen General Merrick Garland demanding the transcript. Now, I would think, Jessica, that if this uh, if this interview were not as bad as, as Robert Hur says it is, the White House has repeatedly accused the special counsel of exaggerating the misremembered details, the memory loss that he identified in this 400-page report, then they should want the transcript to be released. The transcript and the audio recording should be able to disprove the allegations that Robert Herb made in his report. Yeah, I, I can see how it would be taken out of context if Biden was in rough shape that night, given that the events of October 7th were what they were and he was dealing with an international crisis. We know how these things go. Um, when you have an ally of the United States dealing with the attack by Hamas on a settlement that, you know, Israel Israel made. And you have the subsequent fallout of, you know, all ceasefire deals were off. You have Israel preparing for a ground invasion in Gaza, repeatedly bombing Gaza. I imagine the president was probably up all night the night before, right? We had this happen on October 8th and 9th. So I, I can really see that even someone like me, if I was up all night the night before an interview would not do so well, but I, I don't know. We see Biden have all of these gaffes play out on primetime television. We see Biden, you know, forget where the door is, hold up cue cards. We really have enough. I think if if 
what the purpose of this is, is to say, look, he's way too old to be president. I think we already have enough on that. I don't think, you know, what happened in this interview would change that aside from, you know, people really making a meal out of saying, look, this is his cognitive state. This is what he's like when cameras aren't on him. But I think he was in especially rough shape when this was recorded. And, and maybe that's not a fair, a fair judgment to make. Yeah, I mean, in that case, I feel like the White House and the communications officials and lawyers there should have probably delayed the interview. I mean, it doesn't seem like a very wise strategy if you're sitting down for a five-hour deposition with the DOJ who's looking into your willful retention of classified documents. If your mind is elsewhere, if you are distracted as the president, uh, maybe you should put that off a little bit longer. I think the other concerning aspect of this uh, this special counsel report is the way that the Biden administration has repeatedly misidentified and arguably lied about its contents. Ann Sams, who's a communications director with the White House, has twice now sent a four-page letter to the White House press corps accusing them of misrepresenting the report, claiming that there was no evidence that Robert Herr presented that Biden willfully retained classified information or shared it with other people. It says it on page two of the report that he willfully retained classified information and shared it with other people. Um, the only rub was that Robert Herr felt like a jury wouldn't ever convict Biden, and so it wasn't worth bringing charges because of his status as a well-meaning elderly man with a poor memory. And Biden even said in that press conference that he trotted out on Thursday after the report was released that it, it showed that he, uh, that he did not share classified information, which is the opposite of what the report said. It indicated that he did have conversations with his ghostwriter about information that was contained in those reports. And then further, the ghostwriter arguably obstructed justice by deleting the audio recordings that would have proven that Biden was, in fact, doing that. And then, of course, on the memory issues we have in that press conference, uh, Biden coming out, forgetting where his son's rosary is from the name of the church, and then immediately mixing up the presidents of Mexico and Egypt. Um, and then also in the aftermath, the White House leaking um, this idea that it was Robert Hur, uh, Robert Hur being disrespectful by bringing up Beau Biden's death. And so the quibbles over what year he died shouldn't have been in the report in the first place. But new reporting now indicates that it was actually Joe Biden himself who brought up Bo's death and that Robert Herr might have been asking questions about Bo generally. And then Biden was using his uh, tragic passing as a way of trying to garner sympathy from the DOJ. So from start to finish, they've been incredibly dishonest about the entire process, which only, I think, lends further criticism as to the contents of the report and what they indicate about Biden's retention of classified documents, as well as his issues with his cognitive decline. I'm sure there was a conversation in the White House on October 7th that was, we're going to seem like we're getting in the way of due process, that we have something to hide if we don't do this, this deposition tomorrow, if we don't give our testimony. And there was probably some calculation of how that would shake out in the media, given that. Biden's administration and people close to Biden were extremely critical of Donald Trump not immediately complying and, and giving the classified documents in the same way that Pence did, in the same way that Biden did. Donald Trump denied that he had documents for a period of time, refused to turn them in. So I think, yeah, Biden probably 
felt that if he didn't testify, that there would be a media circus about his noncompliance. I think that's why in his speech, when responding to all of this, he said, you know, I complied with everything they asked for. I was in the room for five hours giving testimony amidst this international crisis. I think he really made a point of that because it's it's clear that he didn't push it back for a specific reason. I think that makes sense, not wanting it to play out in the media in that way. But what we have now going into 2024 are two presidents who withheld classified documents upon leaving office were kind of reckless with them. And also you have Biden mixing up the president of Egypt with the president of Mexico saying the uh, the president of Mexico, Sisi, when he, he really meant to, you know, either say Lopez Obrador or the president uh, of Egypt, El Sisi. And then you have President Trump or former President Trump talking about Nancy Pelosi and Nikki Haley and confusing those two. It seems that we're not sending our best, that the people up for office shouldn't be 80 plus years old. We need some people who are younger. It seems to me a national security concern because if President Biden wasn't sharp enough to be up for a period of time and then do this deposition, a younger guy might have been. And also, was he making his best decisions around the international crisis and his relationship with Netanyahu? He could have had some leverage to say, let's not react disproportionately to this and cause a, a huge outbreak of violence in the Middle East, which we've seen happen. We need someone who has the energy to differentiate important political figures and also be up during times of international crisis and hopefully someone who won't keep classified documents and forget that they're there. Yeah, I suppose that's kind of my issue with the White House's defense, too, with uh, with saying that he basically gets a pass because he did the interview on October 8th, the day after this inter international crisis broke out, because you would hope that the president is capable of juggling multiple serious issues at a time. I mean, that's basically the, the whole uh, premise of the job is that you're going to have more than one crisis probably happening at once during some point in your presidency, and you hope that that person is capable of handling that. Um, I think it's also worth pointing out that the White House had the report from special counsel Robert Hur one week, or almost one full week, before Biden went out and gave that press conference. And so the fact that that press conference came off as very um, hastily put together, uh, Biden was very angry, he told uh, lies about what was in the report was a very damning indictment of the White House's ability to handle this report. I think it indicates that it's as bad as everybody is, is saying it is. And then we'll also continue to track this because, of course, the House Republicans are demanding this transcript and to know a little bit more about what was in the documents because there was a lot of overlap between Hunter Biden's influence peddling abroad um, as well as his, his father's responsibilities when he was vice president. Um, and his access to intelligence documents. So we're gonna keep track of this and see if they get the transcript out. And if we do, we'll, I'm sure, read some of it right here on air. We'll be back with more Rising after this. An FBI informant has been charged with fabricating a multi-million dollar bribery scheme involving President Joe Biden his son Hunter, and the Ukrainian energy company Burisma, a claim that is central to the Republican impeachment inquiry in Congress. Per prosecutors, Alexander Smirnov falsely responded to the FBI in June of 2020 that Burisma executives paid Hunter and Joe Biden $5 million each in 2015-2016. 
An attorney for Hunter Biden, who is expected to give a deposition later this month, said the charges show the probe is, quote, based on dishonest, uncredible allegations and witnesses. So this is interesting timing, Jessica. We have had these allegations, or rather the FBI has had the allegations on this uh, 1023 form for years now. They were initially reported to an FBI field office from this confidential informant and basically pushed to the side and not investigated until Republicans started pushing for it through their impeachment inquiry. Now, what's interesting is that it was the FBI who told the House Oversight Committee that this was considered a highly valuable source. They had paid him somewhere between $100,000 and $200,000 for 10 years of his, uh, of his sourcing for the FBI. And now they've determined that he was lying about these allegations, that he did not have any contact with Burisma officials until 2017. So we, he would not have been privy to meetings in 2015 or 2016 when he claims that these officials uh, talked about bribing uh, the Biden family in exchange for policy changes. And there's obviously a lot of harm here. Um, he basically sent the FBI, as well as the House Oversight Committee, down a rabbit hole trying to spend time and waste time investigating false allegations. Uh, the details in the FBI's indictment, or in the DOJ's indictment, rather, are pretty damning in terms of whether or not he was lying. And it also, of course, serves as a, a horrible distraction from the evidence that Republicans have in addition to this, that there was potentially a bribery scheme with the Biden family and that there was corruption going on. So all around, I think this is a huge shame. It's also uh, an indictment of David Weiss, the special counsel from Delaware, um, because he did not investigate these allegations when they first happened. He basically um, put the, the form away in a box and decided not to look into it. And now that the probe has gone further and he's facing allegations of failing to follow up on tips, he's decided to bring this indictment against this particular witness. I mean, everything about this, I think, is just a story about the failure of the FBI repeatedly to properly handle confidential informants, to vet their sources properly, and all of the wasted time, energy, and money that we get as a result of it. Right, yeah, I, I wonder what the take was by the FBI immediately when they decided to file this away and not further investigate. Did they have more information that the public's not aware of as to why this may or may not be true? Uh, it's kind of funny now, looking back on the Republican outrage about this, that how could the FBI not do anything with this you know, complaint? And it's very possible that they you know, investigated it to the extent and figured out this wasn't a very credible witness, he had a bias against Joe Biden. Who knows what happened internally? But now we're in a place where, yes, the evidence that we still do have is the salary that Hunter Biden was getting from Burisma, how he saw a significant drop in his salary as soon as Biden wasn't in office anymore, which now the situation is a, a lot more similar to the Jared Kushner relationship with the Saudi Arabian prince. He was tasked with working in the president's cabinet with Donald Trump and was specifically negotiating for Middle East peace. That's how he became friends with the Saudi Arabian prince and upon leaving public office, got a huge uh, investment into his um, you know, investment firm from uh, the prince who is uh, Mohammed bin Salman. So when you have a huge investment, a $2 billion investment 
coming in from someone that I'm sure was central in the Middle East peace process negotiations, that's dramatic. And people are drawing comparisons right now, which is precisely why Jared Kushner has been speaking on this again, because it's not so different from the Hunter Biden deal. If anything, it's more egregious because he was in the cabinet and it's $2 billion, but also because you had during the Trump presidency, the pulling out from the Iran nuclear deal, Jared Kushner in his defense said, you know, I didn't do anything that wasn't in the interests of America. I'm sure Joe Biden and Hunter could claim the same thing and it would be handled differently by the Republicans. Let's go back for a minute to whether or not the 1023 form in terms of the allegations from this witness were or were not investigated at the time that they were reported. We know that they're not. David Weiss has said they were not. Um, that's according to this House oversight investigation and the interviews that they've had with him. We also know that it was the FBI who considered this individual, Alexander Smirnov, a, a highly valuable source until this indictment came down. FBI Director Christopher Wray, according to NBC News and other bureau officials, briefed members of Congress on this issue last year during in-person meetings. During those meetings, questions about the credibility of the confidential human source were asked by Republicans, and the FBI told them that he was highly valued by the FBI, was considered the go-to source in the region, and had been paid six figures for work to date. They also said they would not release records requested by Congress because the source was so highly valued and involved in multiple ongoing investigations. So it seems more likely that they didn't investigate what he was telling him in regards to the alleged bribery scheme, which we now know he did not have uh, any, any evidence of, because they were scared about what it could potentially uncover. Then when Republicans started pressing them as part of this impeachment inquiry, they decided, okay, we better look into this now. That was when it all unraveled, and they found out that this source apparently was not quite as good as they thought, and that he did not have knowledge of this information. And there's also still a lot of other evidence uh, remaining in terms of the Hunter Biden corruption, in addition just to his salary at Burisma. We have email messages between Hunter and Joe where they discuss uh, Joe Biden as vice president having communications with Ukrainian officials. It's not clear why his son needed to be on those emails. There's WhatsApp messages suggesting uh, um, that Hunter Biden had a deal with some Chinese foreign ministers to get certain things out of his father in exchange for money. There's additional testimony from Devin Archer, who testified to the idea that Joe Biden was the brand, that he was what Hunter Biden was selling, that Hunter repeatedly put Joe on speakerphone during business meetings in order to prove that he had access to the vice president. And earlier this week, actually, we had new testimony from Tony Bobulinski, who was one of the business partners, who has spoken for years consistently about his relationship with the Biden family and in the Biden family business. And this particular portion from Tony Bobulinski's testimony is very interesting, where he says that law enforcement has basically been unwilling to speak with him since he started raising the allegations. He has not been asked to speak with anyone from the Biden administration, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the IRS, or local law enforcement, even though he has said for years that, uh, that Joe Biden was the big guy who was supposed to get 10% in the email that he sent to Hunter Biden. We also have the bank records being trafficked through the House Oversight Committee, as well as these new classified documents that uh, we, we read about in this report from the special counsel, Robert Hur that indicate there was a lot of overlap in the specific documents that were willfully retained by the president and Hunter Biden's business dealings, a whole lot of documents related to the the president's policies, the vice president's policies in Ukraine and China at the time. 
House Republicans are now uh, looking to get the transcript from that interview with the special counsel to see if there is any more evidence of this overlap between Joe and Hunter's businesses. Right, yeah. We we could have had a relationship between the FBI and Smirnov in Ukraine. He could have been giving them information you know, on Russia, on various of the conflicts that had been you know, happening in Ukraine for quite some time. Many people described the country as in a state of civil war. So he could have been an extremely valuable FBI informant on some fronts. But it's apparent now that he did have a bias against the president. Now he didn't want him to win in 2020. And so it makes it a, a little bit even funnier now that the narrative was, yes, there was a $5 million payment and then another subsequent $5 million payment. These went to Hunter and Joe Biden but you're never gonna be able to find them because it seems that that was all fabricated, not because there was an intense web of financial transactions, how they hid this uh, these dollars flowing into the hands of the Bidens from Burisma. So it, very fascinating there. Of course, there's a, an ongoing investigation into other aspects of this, uh, of the Hunter Biden investigation, you know, was the salary something that went down upon him leaving because there were phone calls? We know now uh, that that testimony was hearsay, that the person that was actually sitting right with them while the phone call was happening was not the person who came forward and said that uh, Joe Biden was on speakerphone. So we have a lot of very circumstantial evidence, which seems to always be the case in these situations, right? We're never going to be able to prove that Jared Kushner and his negotiations in the Middle East was like, hey, you know what, Saudi prince, uh, I'm gonna do some favors for you. You want X, Y, and Z. I'm gonna go talk to Donald Trump, the president, and make sure that that's how we move forward here. Whether it's pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal, whether it's whether or not they're supporting the Saudis fight against the Houthis at that point in time, there could have been a number of things that are now all covered because they're national security concerns. They're classified information that are pertinent to the security of our country. So we can't really genuinely explore what Jared Kushner was up to that warranted from the wealth fund of the Saudi prince a $2 billion investment into Kushner's private equity firm after leaving office. There could have been all kinds of favors there. And I think it's a disservice to the public that we don't have members of Congress going into a skiff trying to weed out this corruption. And if you're upset about what we know for sure, which is the salary being exchanged to Hunter Biden from Burisma, you can create laws that someone who's close to the president, who's in his cabinet or family members, can't take money with people who own foreign entities because there's this risk that they could jeopardize the security of the people in the United States making deals that will enrich them personally, uh, you know, when it comes to foreign conflicts or even internally with America's largest corporations. Yeah, I think I agree with that, that uh, if you leave office, you shouldn't be able to make a ton of money based on the foreign connections that you made while you were in office. And just one last point I, I want to make before we wrap, but it is interesting that the FBI has failed to charge any of the confidential human sources that they used during the fake Russian collusion hoax, including Christopher Steele, Stefan Halper, and Rodney Jaffe. Um, none of them have been indicted for lying to the FBI, despite the fact that their claims were used to uh, launch a, an attempted coup against the city president. We'll be back with more Rising after this. In honor of Black History Month, United States Assistant Secretary for Health, Admiral Rachel Levine, has a very important message. 
Climate change is racist. Take a look at a video released by Levine yesterday revealing how black Americans are most impacted by climate change. Hello, I'm Admiral Rachel Levine. This Black History Month, I'm pleased to partner with OMH in advancing better health through better understanding for black communities. Climate change is having a disproportionate effect on the physical and mental health of black communities. Black Americans are more likely than white Americans to live in areas and housing that increase their susceptibility to climate-related health issues. And 65% of black Americans report feeling anxious about climate change's impact. Through our Office of Climate Change and Health Equity and the Office of Environmental Justice, we're working with providers and community leaders to identify innovative approaches that empower communities to address the health consequences linked to climate change. Visit hhs.gov for more information and tune in next Thursday to hear from another HHS leader on how you can contribute to advancing better health for black communities. All right, Jessica, I've always been curious about this claim that climate change is racist because it disproportionately impacts marginalized groups because pollution is more common in low-income inner-city areas or by people who can't afford to move away from pollutants. But isn't that more of a question of class disparities as opposed to racial disparities? I think that specific one is uh, climate change uh, can't be racist, but did racism cause black people disproportionately be impacted being impacted by climate change? I would say yes. Firstly, you have mostly black Americans being concentrated in the Southeast. That's because that's where there are a lot of plantations and that's where many African-Americans were brought to the United States during chattel slavery. And so that's also the area of the United States that's most impacted by dangerous storms. There are studies that show by 2050, it's 17% of black owned homes that will be at risk for storm damage. That's compared to 10% overall for the United States, but even within the greater Southeast United States, you have black residents 1.6% more likely than the average US uh, population within the Southeast to experience a one in 100 year flooding event. Uh, in the case of Hurricane Katrina, there was 30% of residents there in Louisiana, New Orleans in 2005 that didn't have cars, which made it really difficult for them to flee. But also we see these low lying areas really susceptible to flooding are predominantly low income, but also predominantly people of color. Uh, in South LA, you also have uh, that being a predominantly uh, people of color neighborhood and you have three fifths of the residents not having air conditioning. So there's all kinds of problems. There's the flooding, there's the severe storms, there's the threat of heat stroke. There were studies out of the University of Virginia that showed in redlined neighborhoods, even within the same city uh, where there are black residents, the temperatures are even hotter. So yes, I do think it's an issue that will affect black Americans more than the general United States population. But do I think that we only discuss that because it's Black History Month? No, we should discuss that all the time. Yeah, I mean, to me, it just seems like the Biden administration is trying to take this away from an income inequality issue or a class issue for the purpose of making this sort of a racially divisive thing on Black History Month. I mean, we previously heard from Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg that basically bridges and roads are racist because in New York there were parkways built where large buses couldn't get from low-income communities to the beach, and Robert Moses, the person who built those parkways, was accused of doing so to intentionally keep black and, uh, and brown Americans out of Jones Beach because he considered them unclean. 
Thanks to a Washington Post fact check, we now know that this one uh, particular claim about Robert Moses has been heavily disputed by historians and that the parkways that he built in New York were actually comparatively uh, more accessible um, to ones throughout the rest of the United States, that the bridges were, when measured, actually very consistent with the normal parkway heights and that he actually took great care to make sure that he could give as much access as possible to people from outside of New York and the Long Island Island communities. Parkways, of course, were created because of the idea that people should have a luxurious driving experience free of large tractor trailers, buses, and other uh, cars that created a lot of exhaust. So I'm just always skeptical of these claims from uh, the Biden administration and from the climate activists left more generally because you go back and you look at the history and it turns out that some of their claims are either greatly exaggerated or turn out not to be true. I mean, in the natural disaster instance, for example, we know that natural disasters are becoming less deadly every single year, even as we claim that climate change is getting increasingly bad. And, and so you have these sort of contradicting narratives that don't really square. Yeah, I mean, we have gotten better at evacuations and having better emergency protocol around storms. Storms are getting more severe as time goes on, and that's you know been proven in the data and is projected to continue by climate scientists. It's also not just you know the activists in the administration presenting this information, the statistic around 2050 that not low-income homes, but specifically black homes will be disproportionately affected by severe storms, 17% for black homes compared to 10% overall for US residents. That's coming from McKinsey and Company, which is you know not a, not a particular climate activist at all. The University of Virginia also posting that study on redlining, not just within low-income neighborhoods, but specifically the black areas of neighborhoods are experiencing hotter temperatures. So of course this has to do with black history, given the fact that you know the Southeast United States is majorly populated by black people compared to the rest of America because of our history of chattel slavery and is also disproportionately going to be affected by the storms that are the result of rising global temperatures and will increase in, in intensity because of that change in the climate. So it's a lot of really prestigious universities publishing this. It's not coming from activists or the, the Biden administration, but I think you know the relevant narrative around the time of black history is not just, we only care about black problems during this month, it should be a time to teach black history and, and the foundation of why storms are more intense for black Americans because it is connected to chattel slavery. You mentioned that uh, the, the temperatures are apparently hotter in the same neighborhoods when you look at where black people live in those neighborhoods and where uh, non-people of color live in those neighborhoods. Why That's do you right. think that might be? Well, a lot of public policy studies have shown that what reduces temperatures in a lot of urban areas is having more areas of grass, more parks, more trees, and actually a concentration of concrete and roofs that are not made to be you know, friendly to hot temperatures. If you have a whiter roof made of different materials and better insulation, they're not as hot. It has to do with the qualities of materials used to construct the buildings. But I think the biggest factor is the, the prevalence of blacktop and the lack of greenery in those neighborhoods. And how did we get to the point that only black people are living in the parts of the neighborhoods where there's poor housing materials and no green space? Well, during the periods of segregation, there was less investment in communities that were overwhelmingly populated by black Americans during Jim Crow. Right, but people have the ability to move at this point. I mean, we're talking about decades prior to where we are now. How, how are they still 
um, so perfectly segregated at this point that they are experiencing higher temperatures than their white compatriots. Well, moving requires money, Amber, and that's not right, something everyone has. I understand that, but you're saying that it's 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 individuals in the same low-income neighborhood, but different sections of that neighborhood. So is the argument that the black poor people are just way poorer than the white poor people? Well, the white people are in the area that during segregation was given more resources and public investment and therefore has more greenery and different pavement and better insulation. Right, but you said that, that it's, it's a low-income neighborhood, right? So presumably all of the people who live in that neighborhood are about the same income level. Um, how is it that a black person couldn't afford to move to the part with more green space, but a white person could? The white people were already there during segregation. Right, but my point is that people are capable of moving within neighborhoods, right? So how is it that they're still segregated that way? Well, it takes money to move. So if everyone in a low-income area doesn't have the money for new investment to buy a house or to move to a different neighborhood, that right, would but, be why they wouldn't but, move. Right, but most people don't just... Uh, live in the same house that their parents lived in or you're, I mean typically you don't have five six seven generations all growing up in the same house in a neighborhood so I, I'm just not sure that I am understanding how exactly that's happening well that's also the effect of redlining in neighborhoods when you have the continuation of policy similar to segregation where you have it generally understood by a lot of the real estate agents. It's not an explicit policy to have continued segregation, but it's been observed that this happens, that white families are sold homes when black families are not. But a huge part of this as well is that's your community. If you're living in your community where there's, you know, your family, that's where your parents grew up, it makes sense that people would want to continue to live where their community is. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I just, I guess at this point, I'm curious um, if there's still some disparity in how the government is providing resources to areas because um, if you're talking about the same low-income neighborhood uh, at this point is the government still giving more resources to the white side of the low-income neighborhood as compared to the black side I guess I'm just not understanding how over the past 70 years there hasn't been enough progress that the government is still apparently preventing black people from having green space well, a lot of the wealth that was accumulated through chattel slavery is still in the hands of white families and has been passed down for generations, unless the government did wealth redistribution policies and you know taxed the wealth acquired through slavery or just tax wealth in general, we won't see that be corrected. But in the case of segregation, when you have neighborhoods be invested in during the Jim Crow era and you have them planting trees and creating parks, unless those trees are chopped down and those parks are paid over, those areas are still gonna have more greenery and have cooler temperatures than the areas that were not invested in during Jim Crow, unless there's an explicit investment to say, we're investing in these communities that have been left behind, we're gonna plant trees, we're gonna you know, pave roads with different materials, we're gonna invest in these communities, unless you know, there's some equalization of the spread of resources, we're gonna see the path dependency of the, the, the post-Civil War segregation we saw continue. Does the redistribution go just from white families who have been proven to have benefited, benefited financial, directly financially from slavery to black families that are descendants of slaves, or is it all white people to all black people? I don't know. They haven't done any redistribution, unfortunately. I would like to see a wealth cap in the United States. I would like to see them you know, tax any wealth over $100 million and invest that in all communities and assess their communities and see you know, which neighborhoods need more investment than others. Does this neighborhood have a park while this other neighborhood doesn't? I think that would be the kind of analysis you would make and redistributing, redistributing a lot of that wealth acquired through a very progressive wealth tax 
reparations would be something different. But what we're talking about here is really an investment in neighborhoods, not a direct wealth transfer from the descendants of slaves uh, to, you know, black, uh, or rather from slave owners to the descendants of slaves. That would be reparations. What I'm talking about is just wealth redistribution. All right, well, we're gonna leave it there. We'll be back with more Rising after this. You might wanna put that box of Cheerios back on the shelf if you're interested in your health. A staggering four out of five Americans are being exposed to a dangerous chemical linked to reduced fertility, altered fetal growth, and delayed puberty. Those chemicals are reportedly on a huge number of popular oat-based foods in America, including Cheerios and Quaker Oats. In a study of the chemical chlormaquat, sorry if I mispronounced that, published in Nature magazine, the presence of the chemical in urine samples collected from people in the U.S. with detection frequencies of 69, 74, and 90% for samples collected in 2017, 2018 to 2022, and 2023 respectively. Chlormaquat was detected at low concentrations in samples from 2017 through 2022, with a significant increase in concentrations for samples from 2023. We also observed high detection frequencies of chlormaquat in oat-based foods. So unfortunately, the latest example, Jessica, of our food supply literally being poisoned. We have so much processed food in America now that contains all of these chemicals that they claim are for shelf, st shelf life stability, for the ability of these foods to, to be preserved for a longer period of time so they don't go bad as quickly. But it turns out that as we get more science on this topic, that a lot of these chemicals are obviously not good for our bodies. And I don't think it's any coincidence that we've seen a rise in chronic illnesses, in diabetes, obesity throughout our country as our food supply has gotten away from whole foods and more into these types of boxed prepackaged goods. Yeah, what happened to, I thought it was Quaker Oats. He's supposed to be a pacifist and his Cheerios are poisoning us. Um, and they're making us gay, puberty blockers, infertility. I don't know, it's, it is giving <laughs> Alex Jones, making the frogs gay to me. But it seems it's very real. 80% of Americans uh, have been exposed to this in some way. Are 80% of Americans eating Cheerios? Maybe, but I think it's a huge problem that it's this chemicals used in ornamental plants, but you can't use it on edible plants in the United States, but it is used in other countries. So... A lot of this has to do with our global supply chain being one that relies on the extraction of resources from other countries uh, or exploitation of their labor as well, especially in the case of farming. If we're getting wheat from other countries and using that wheat to make the Cheerios, that seems to me an explanation for why they're in there. I don't think Quakers just adding it in there for fun. But it's time we examine our global supply chain and have the FDA and the EPA actually do their jobs and make sure our food is safe. There's a reason why people go to Europe and they're like, I felt great. I had so much energy. I felt so healthy. And then they come back home to the United States, start eating our food and start to feel bad again. There's poison in the Cheerios. So, yeah, it makes sense. 
Yeah, it's really uh, unfortunate that we don't talk about these global supply chains more. I mean, both from a health and a national security perspective. I remember doing a report a couple of years ago about meatpacking plants in the United States, and there's a huge monopoly for one of basically three to five meatpacking uh, companies that control most of the supply. And one of them is owned by a pair of corrupt Brazilian brothers who have been facing all kinds of indictments and charges related to their, their uh, corrupt practices. That's JBS out of Brazil. And uh, years ago had been uh, accused of having um, basically tainted the meat supply and ended up getting a bunch of people sick. Um, so this is the problem that we have when we export our food supply to other countries. We don't have as much control over the process in terms of how that uh, food gets from the growth to processing to actually making it onto store shelves. And in this case, the, uh, the Brazilian brothers from JBS were basically let off the hook by the U.S. government and JBS continues to operate a huge share of meatpacking in the United States. And I think we also have to blame the way that we have done our own agricultural policy in the United States, where the way that we've been giving out farm grants and farm aid has uh, encouraged the monopolization of companies, because of course, if you're a bigger company, you get more money in aid, whereas small and middle of the road farmers end up getting left out put out to pasture, so to speak, um, getting uh, get hung out to dry where they don't get as much and aren't able to compete with these large monopolistic producers. And so it's a, a significantly more expensive for Americans to get food directly from a source unless you live in a rural part of the country and you can share a cow with another family or you live near a farm where you can buy directly from the farmer. You're basically uh, guaranteed to have your food go through a multi-step long process where God knows what kind of chemicals or, or other poison can be introduced throughout that process. Um, everything about it is really unfortunate. I think it's important to point out that the United States is incredibly lucky in that we have great access to a diverse array of food, probably more than anywhere else in the world. But how much of a benefit is that if the so-called food that we're receiving is actually harming our health? Yeah, absolutely. I went to trade school for agriculture. I was in the FFA. So talking about agriculture is an, an issue that's very close to my heart. Once upon a time, I was wearing that blue corduroy jacket, but it was really at the time when corporate farming was on the rise. Monsanto Seed Corporation would have their seeds blow onto a small farmer's land. And because they were patented genetically modified technology, they could sue the farmer uh, for everything they had. Farmers were having to declare bankruptcy because of these lawsuits because the seeds were simply carried by the wind onto their farm and it made it seem like they had planted the patented Monsanto seed crops. And it's a bad situation because then, of course, if the farmer's declaring bankruptcy or has to sell their land to pay legal fees to settle the case, then now Monsanto Seed Corporation would end up buying that land. When you have huge food conglomerates, you have a population that's really at risk for famine. Look at what happened when we were short on formula for babies. There were only a handful of companies in the United States that made formula. So when one company had their formula contaminated in some way, it led to a huge shortage. 
This is something that can cause huge problems if it happens to our agricultural industry when you have mass farming at this scale, but also just a bad way of life for the farmers. A lot of farmers don't even own the livestock that they raise. They're contracted with, it's Cane's Farms here in North Carolina, that's huge. Uh, when I live in Iowa, it's the hogs. You had so many small pig farmers. And similarly in North Carolina, a lot of small chicken farmers. And instead, you have this dream sold that, how about you just rent the pigs? All you have to do is pay for feed and raise them, but we'll front the cost for, for the pigs or for the chickens in the case of Cane's Farms. And it's a bad situation because eventually, uh, if you have a loss some year and you're tied to this corporation, you, you're in debt to them. And that's not a, a good way to run a farm. The World Bank has done all kinds of studies showing that actually if you own the farm you live on, you not only produce high quali higher quality food, but you have higher yields. So it's a good way of life for the farmer and it also produces better food. We've really got to change a lot about our agricultural industry. Uh, but for now, we just have to avoid the Cheerios, I guess. Yeah, I, and I remember listening to a podcast recently with RFK Jr. where he talked about Monsanto and his lawsuits against them, particularly for some of the chemicals that they were apparently using on their crops that made a lot of people sick, um, not just on the farms, but in the surrounding neighborhoods. And I know Congress is looking into banning uh, Chinese ownership of farmland in the United States. I think that's a good first step. Smithfield, our largest pork producer, is uh, its parent company is actually Chinese-owned. So a lot of problems with the food industry that we need to be looking into. That's going to do it for us today on Rising. Thanks so much for tuning in and a great Friday show with Jessica. Another good Friday show. Good to have you back, Amber. Absolutely. Thank you. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next week. Bye, y'all.